Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, offering an 11-month MBA program featuring paid internships and a study abroad program. Books included. More at tamusa.edu slash MBA. How much do these books weigh? I'm in the basement of the Anderson County Courthouse. With me is E.R. Bills. He's a renegade, maverick, Texas historian. He's written a lot of books and articles uncovering the darker side of Texas history. We've worked on projects before and we're teaming up again. This time we're searching for court documents or any records related at all to Frank J. Robinson, the voting rights advocate who died under mysterious circumstances in East Texas in 1976. Robinson. Frank J. Robinson. Frank J. Robinson. Yes. Okay, so maybe look through these here. In the basement were handed giant books. They're comically large. They weigh about 30 pounds each. These are artifacts from the days before computers and digitized records. These are from the age of ink, paper, and proper penmanship. Sure had nice handwriting back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so this is the R's, and we're looking for Robinson, and there's nothing there. In these massive books, cases are not listed in any precise kind of order, not by date or alphabet, but there is some kind of system that achieves orderly information retrieval, but it does demand some blunt effort pulling a giant book off a rack, thumbing through, and hoping to get lucky. 71, yeah, but see, this, one's, this one doesn't say anything, so you can maybe look through so this, this one. So it's an index, so yes. that'll be helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If we can find it 72 to 74. So this one's the index. So look through this one. This one's also the index. Okay. E.R. Bills and I are searching for the records from the public inquest for Frank J. Robinson, hoping that it will lead to the autopsy report, crime scene photos, and witness testimony so we can figure out what happened. How did Frank J. Robinson die, and if there was a cover-up? Long story short, we found nothing, and that in itself is weird. We struck out time and time again. Records relating to Robinson's death, the investigation, and the public inquest have all vanished. It's as if someone or some group of people didn't want anyone finding these records and evidence that would raise legitimate questions and call into question the official story that Frank J. Robinson killed himself. So am I hinting that there was a conspiracy? Well, not exactly. It's beyond my imagination to think that there was a cabal, an organization that ordered Frank J. Robinson's records removed and destroyed. But when you have individuals who share beliefs, prejudices, and a common goal, you don't need an organization. Bad things just seem to happen all on their own, as if by coincidence. And I found a lot of coincidences while looking for the records of Frank J. Robinson. From Texas Public Radio, this is The Ghost of Frank J. Robinson, Episode 4, A Questionable Death. I'm David Martin Davies. It was a pure case of homicide. The chief of police told my pastor it was a clear case of homicide. Within a week, it had turned to suicide. There's a picture of a cat licking the inside of his skull when he's there on the garage floor. I would generally say that something took the top of his head off. He was shot four times. 
How you gonna commit suicide? Shoot yourself four times. African American gentleman that was murdered out by the, one of the local schools. So uh, he was murdered. Yeah. No one in the black community of Palestine ever thought it was anything other than a Klan assassination. That was Klan territory out there. It just that was just life out there in that part of the world. And in the end, they determined it even against the. The testimony of witnesses, they decided it was a suicide. So we're looking for inquest records. So that wouldn't be through our court. Um, we just came from the county. After coming up empty at the courthouse, we went to check the Palestine City municipal records. The judge in the inquest was the municipal judge. Yes. Palestine Municipal Court Judge Alex Niemer. So, so they're saying because it was the municipal court judge was the presiding judge that the, the, records, the records could possibly be here. Yeah, city records. Again, we found zilch. Almost everywhere I looked, there were no records. And yeah, that's weird. I have been sending out Texas open records requests to the Palestine Police Department, the Anderson County Sheriff's Department, and the local district attorney's office. I was asking for documents related to the death and investigation and public inquest for Frank J. Robinson, and each time I got the response that the case was too old, 1976, and the records didn't go back that far. 1976 is a long time ago, but it's not the dark ages. There was record-keeping back then, and the world didn't start in the 1990s unless you didn't want the world to know what happened before then. I also checked with the Texas State Archive looking at the State Attorney General's office records. These records still exist, but they're not cataloged and digitized. I need a case number, and I don't have that without the records. There are files at the Briscoe Center for American History at UT Austin. These are Dorothy Robinson's personal documents, letters, and newspaper clippings. It was there that I found a letter that Assistant Attorney General Anthony Sadbury sent to Dorothy Robinson, informing her that the Texas Attorney General's office ordered a special autopsy report to be performed by the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Science in Dallas. That letter was sent on January 18, 1977. This is after the public inquest that ruled Frank's death a suicide, but the rumors, doubts, and Dorothy's questions wouldn't stop. It was hoped that this new autopsy by the state's top medical examiner authority would provide some needed answers with a final and definitive report. Maybe this is what would bring the needed closure. Except, no report was ever produced. Reporters at that time were asking about it. One reporter from the Houston Post wrote to Dorothy and asked her to reach out to him if she was ever given a copy. She never got one. And in the investigation that I conducted for this podcast, I've sent multiple open records requests and directly called the Dallas County Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences asking for a copy of this definitive autopsy, and I was told it didn't exist. The records did go back to the 1970s and beyond, but there was nothing there. Not only does this report not exist, but there's no record of an official request to produce it. I was told... There is nothing in their logbook about it. Another dead end. Somewhere out there, there is a box marked Frank J. Robinson with his autopsy report and crime scene photos along with the transcript of the inquest and witnesses' testimony, and I'm still going to be looking for it. 
So far, one of the biggest portions of the research that I have is coming from the newspaper reporting from that time. Most old newspapers these days have been scanned and digitized, so you can find out a lot just by going online. But the back issues of the local paper, the Palestine Herald, have not been brought into the information age. Those old copies are not available online, and the only way to read them is to go in person to the Palestine City Public Library. In a back room with these special collections, the old newspapers are on microfiche, so you have to take a spool of this film that includes several months of the newspapers, hook it up to a machine that's kind of like a projector, and go by, looking day by day for what happened. And again, this archive is not cataloged. I can't type in Frank J. Robinson into a search bar and be provided with story after story of his life and death in Palestine. I have to hand crank the machine and look for the articles to figure out what happened. And it's a good thing that I did that over a year ago, because in March of 2022, this special collection part of the library was suddenly shut down, disassembled, and put into storage. No word for how long it's going to be out of commission. Apparently, the library, which is housed in an old shopping mall, may have to move. So for now, no one else has access to the only public archive of the city's history, which also contains critical information about the death of Frank J. Robinson. We hear all the time about the importance of saving Southern history and heritage. There are organizations dedicated to preserving the four years of the Confederacy, which of course was a pro-slavery, anti-democratic failed state that brought ruin, shame, and disgrace to the South. But apparently the only history that's worth saving to these people is the fictionalized and fetishized days of Dixie. The unreconstructed Confederate cosplayers of today claim the removal of their statues is erasing history. Meanwhile, the actual erasing of history is happening. Why have all the official records of Frank J. Robinson's mysterious death vanished? And if no one notices, and if no one asks why, then it's going to be as if he never existed. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, I get to a document that changes everything. Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, now offering multiple graduate programs like the 11-month MBA, the fully online Master of Science in Criminology and Criminal Justice, and many more. Learn more at becomeajaguar.com. The newspaper clippings revealed that Texas Ranger Bob Prince investigated Frank J. Robinson's death. Prince is still alive, and he's been as helpful as he can be. He retrieved his investigation reports from the Texas Rangers Museum archive, and he sent them to me. I had also sent an open records request to the DPS Texas Rangers and later got those records, which matched what Prince had provided. Bob Prince declined to a recorded interview because he says he doesn't really remember that much about the case. It's all in the report, he told me. A questionable death was the title of the report, and I immediately emailed the PDF file to E.R. Bills. Bills is the author of multiple books about Texas history, including the 1910 Slocum Massacre, an act of genocide in East Texas, 
which was first to draw national attention to the attempt to cover up the history of the attack of the black community Slocum in Anderson County, which is also where Palestine is. He's also the author of Black Holocaust, The Paris Horror and a Legacy of Texas Terror. In a 2019 Texas Monthly article, The Battle to Rewrite Texas History, Bills was named as part of a new generation of scholars who are attempting to correct the Texas historical record. ER and I talked about what we found in the Prince report. In a lot of ways, ER, this is kind of like the, for me, it's like a Rosetta Stone of trying to figure out what happens. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's how we sort of decode, if you will, at least in terms of what's available on the invest on the investigation, what happened back then. And so you and I are down there goofing around, and then later you find this report and you pass it along to me, and so I go through it. And the thing that jumps out about the report to me now is that the first page, it's dated 1015, and it just says, you know, victim Frank Robinson killed, blah, blah, blah. A thorough investigative report will be submitted at a later date. So on October 28, 1976, two weeks after he filed the initial report, which basically said Frank is dead, he files this official report. And the first thing he starts off with is that he was informed on 10-14-76 at 4 p.m. It, it reads like, you know, those opening monologues from Dragnet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. But the thing that was interesting to me is on the first page that, he, that he's informed at 4 and he shows up at 6. So it's 6 p.m. on October 14th. Now, why it's important to remember that is that the body, as reported, you know, in the you know in the local accounts, was found nine hours earlier. So by then the body's gone, right? So he shows up, and so he talks to a bunch of officers, and so everything he gets practically is secondhand. Right, and that's kind of the nature of, of this type of investigation. He's not there doing the forensic investigation where he's right. Uh, he's t- he's talking to people and following up leads and and trying to get information about what do people know. Yeah, by the time he got there, the crime scene had cleaned up. Dorothy had arrived, uh, and he just starts uh, talking to folks and, and taking their testimony. That's right. He shows up on a, uh, the scene of a murder or a su- suicide, depending on how you look at it, nine hours after, after the fact, after the body's found. You know, there are some things that do jump out. He says the all, until officers entered the garage, there were no footprints in the blood and brain matter was covering the walls. Um, he says that latent fingerprints were lifted from the shotgun, uh, and they also rolled Frank's fingerprints. Um, they couldn't identify, as you go through the port, none of those prints were identified to be Frank's. Now, maybe they weren't, there wasn't enough of an impression or whatever. I don't know. Also, he mentions Jack, Dr. Jack Pruitt, a pathologist, who appeared to have uh, done a lot of uh, work on uh, crime scenes, uh, he was not a medical examiner. He was out of Lufkin. He came and uh, did an examination at Updeck Funeral Home. So that that was something that that jumped out at me. Um, okay, so he also notes, and uh, and this is after some studies were performed, that there were no nitrates or powder residue found on the clothing, which we find uh, to be very odd. If you know. Uh, how can right. you shoot the? We we learn later that the shotgun is fired four times, and there's no nitrates found anywhere on him. Not only that, that uh, Frank J. Robinson, if he had fired that shotgun, if it was suicide, he would have had to 
reload twice actually, and uh, and still no nitrates is uh, or gum powder powder residue seems out of the ordinary. Very suspicious. Here's here's the other thing. There's one thing I didn't think about going in, going through this this Ranger report. They basically said one shot was fired from the right barrel, and three shots were fired from the left, or they said all the rest of the shots were fired from the left barrel. So that means it had to have been cracked open three times, not two, because they're saying all the rest of the shots came out of the left barrel. That's in the report, So, which is strange. I don't get that. It's kind of like not firing. It also, also said the shotgun would fire uh, two shots. It was a double air. Yeah, that both barrels were functional, that it wasn't yeah. a, a problem, and that it was uh, unlikely that there would be an accidental firing, of the, yes, that the shotgun exactly was, in right. good, was in good order. Uh, so, so, it, so it was fired, it was cracked open three times, not twice, and still no powder residue? That's, that's shocking to me. Um, so let me just bring this, so, this one point up real quick. Go ahead. So in a, one of these cases I was reading about, Jack Pruitt was testifying in, it was another uh, self-inflicted shotgun case. The attorney who was presenting this case demonstrated the, how the, the, the shooting in the courtroom in that he pointed a shotgun at himself and then he uh, slammed his foot against the ground to make a loud noise and then he f- flung the shotgun across the room and collapsed on the floor. But what got me was like he flung the shotgun across the room. And it's like when you kill yourself with a shotgun, like they allege Frank Robinson did, they found the shotgun at his feet, laid across his left leg. And like, I mean, when you shoot yourself with this, in this way, with this violent shotgun, is the shotgun more likely to be close to you or will it be across the room? Well, you, you, you just blew your head off. Your body convulses. You have the entire force of the shotgun. You don't have the capacity to hold it in place. It, it will fly out of your hands like a rocket. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, that's a good point, David. I mean, they have a kick, a shot, especially the older shotguns. They have a kick. You're right. Exactly. Exactly. It would have, it would have, you know, I don't know, you know, when I was younger, you know, hunting with a 410 even, you know, if you don't have it propped up against your shoulder, it'll knock you over. <laughs> you know, you'll stumble. Yeah. Uh, it, and so 12 gauge is even worse. So if he was holding that bot, that gun, and that's, boy, that's a terrific point I didn't think of. If he was holding that gun with one hand or even two with no shoulder behind it. Right. Yeah, wow. Up against his and head. That's another thing. Right there, right next to him, is as if someone laid it exactly. out. Exactly. Maybe it wouldn't have jettisoned, jettisoned out of his, you know, failing grip after he shot himself, supposedly. But, yeah, it would have, it would have flown. The other points I would make about that, and you're well aware, uh, so four shots were fired, and some of them were apparently not fired in his direction, you know, if, right. if what uh, pellets from the shotgun blast appeared in a, a rototiller bag in front of uh, Dorothy's car, and they wound up striking Dorothy's car and the catalytic converter and this, that, and the other. So it was so close to the ground 
that the shots, the pellets of the shotgun blast went up into the undercarriage of the gun. Right. Okay. Right. Why would you, if you're going to test a shotgun, I mean, you'd have to be lying on the ground, basically, and shooting the shotgun up at an angle near the vehicle in order to get that pattern of your of your shot. You're exactly right. I mean, you're. I'm. I'm not as good at geometry as I used to be, but the angle you'd have to you'd have to have the barrel pointed at to get it to go under the car. You're exactly right. If it bounces too soon, it hits the top of the car. Yeah, we have to be shot right at the base. I mean, why he's like on the ground, on his back, shooting up uh, across the garage. It goes into the bottom of the vehicle, including the front fender of the vehicle as well. Dorothy later said that, you know, she would be driving the car and and there still would be pellets falling out of the car. I just think, that, to me, it seems like, could, could that have been evidence of a struggle? It could have been. I thought about that um, sort of same thing. When, the, uh, when Tommy Lumpkin shows up uh, and he's uh, friends with Frank, he, he said that he thought Robinson was shot into the back of his head. Okay, I'm going to find Lupkin's, uh, what he told the Texas Ranger. Okay, at, on November 5th, 1976, at 11 a.m., so Mr. Sadbury, the, who was the uh, person who was appointed by the Attorney, Texas Attorney General's Office to do the help in the investigation, and the Texas Ranger, Bob Prince, they interviewed uh, Tommy Lumpkin. He was a colored male. You know, that was the terminology of the time. Approximately 35 years of age. So he stated he arrived at the scene when the body was found at approximately 9.45 in the morning uh, before anyone else had disturbed the scene or moved the body. He stated that the CID officers for the Palestine Police Department were present, and he further stated that he was recognized by Detective uh, Sergeant McDowell to make a positive identification of the body as he was a close friend of Mr. Robinson. And uh, Mr. Lumpkin stated that from his observation at the scene, he is convinced it was a murder. He further states that he believes that Mr. Robinson was shot into the back of the head. He also stated that there is no way that he can conceive that it was a suicide. And when questioned about knowing anyone who might have had reason to kill Robinson, he stated he does not have any knowledge as to who might want to kill the victim. So approximately two months prior, this is according, this is still Lumpkin's testimony, approximately two months right. prior to Mr. Robinson's death uh, was the last time he had seen Mr. and Mrs. Robinson, and he was telling him about someone stealing the flags off his flagpole in front of his residence. When it was suggested to Mr. Robinson uh, that authorities be notified, Mr. Robinson stated that, no, I will find out who stole them. So someone was stealing the flags at the Robinson's house. Right. I mean, that seems like, I mean, could it's that have least, been a, a it's, warning? It's at least, okay, it's at least evidence of some kind of mild menace. It may be not major menace, but it, but mild menace. Okay, so someone either didn't like the flags or they didn't like the Robinsons or Mr. Robinson. But also, this is at the same time that Robinson was going to the city council meetings, standing in front of the city council and demanding pretty much that they move to single member districts. So, okay, now, 
I'm going to go back to this point here about this, this being shot in the back of the head. Right. You and I, when we're in Palestine, and we're just talking to people on the street, we walk up to, walking around the neighborhoods, and we're saying, hey, old timer, you know anything about Frank J. Robinson? And, you know, people would tell us, yeah, he was shot in the back of the head. How do you shoot yourself in back of the head? That, I mean, this is the narrative that that people in the streets of Palestine, particularly in, in the black parts of the city, this is what they know. This is what they think. This is what they've heard, that he was shot in back of the head. Okay, I'm going to step out of the conversation with ER Bills for a second to make this point, and then we're going to go back to the conversation. So the first thing that ENR did when we got to Palestine was to go to the Robinson house. I was hoping to talk to the current residents. Maybe they'll let us look inside the garage, get an idea of the layout of the house. But no one was living in it at the time. The house's white paint is flaking off. It was in the process of being renovated. A couple of houses down from the Robinsons, there was a man sitting outside smoking cigarettes and drinking a cold one. We went over to talk to him. He said his name was John Taylor. He was wearing a T-shirt that read, Three things you should never say to a cop. How about I buy you donuts and you let me go? I smell bacon. And didn't I see you get beat up on cops? I asked him if he knew anything about Frank J. Robinson. No, uh, and what I heard, now, uh, Frank Robinson. Yeah. That's the one that was... It's okay got... if I record you? I'm, I'm a journalist. Well, I mean, I don't want to start nothing, you know. You're not going to start nothing. We're just, you know... Well, I can just tell you what I heard yeah. and what I know. I don't mind. Okay, all right. Okay. Yeah, uh... Right up here on this hill up here. Yeah. Uh, Frank and Dalton Robinson stayed there. Okay, now one year, we was in school. Story School used to be there. A.M. Story. Used That's to be right there, where that vacant lot is. So we out on recess. A white van pulled up to the house. And we heard a boom. And then that white van took off. Ain't heard nothing about it since. You know, I mean, me, uh, somebody know what's going on, but they ain't talking. It ain't talking. And they're all old now. You know, but see, all the people who can tell you about it now, they didn't go. How old are you? I'm, I'm 60. I'm 60. Mm-hmm. But I remember when that happened. I was in school up there. A.M. service school. That's where I was. Did you, was hear, did you hear the, the gunshot, the hmm? boom? We was out there playing. There were six kids. They were playing football. Six kids, supposedly. Yeah, yeah we, we was on recess. No, you can do whatever you want to do on recess. Play basketball, football, or whatever. But we was out there on the field playing football. And we saw that white van come up. Did you only hear one boom or more than one? No, I heard two. I heard a boom, boom. The next thing you know, that white van took off, come down this way, and went that way. Never seen or heard anything else about it. Did you see who was driving the white van? No, they were white. So it was more than one person? It was two. I saw two. I saw two. I saw two people. What do you think happened? Because they said it was suicide. Uh, well, what I want to know is, how are you going to take a shotgun and put it to the back of your head and pull the trigger? <laughs> That's what I want. It's impossible. You can't shoot yourself in the back of the head with a shotgun. Well, the forensic 
doctor. Did they say the mouth? They said he put it on his forehead. Even that would be tough. But well, I mean, I don't know what's going on, but when they first came out, he was shot in the back of the head. With well, they, a also, shotgun. they also claimed it was murder initially. So. Right. Well, I mean, now, he was a powerful black man in this neighborhood. In in now, Palestine been prejudiced, and it still is. I, I ain't going to make no if, ands, or buts about it. But at that time, when that happened, they didn't give a damn because he was a powerful black man getting things done for black people here in Palestine. Now, not just for black people, but for all people. You know, whether you're white, Mexican, he didn't make it didn't make no difference to him. He was a he was a person that looked at all races as a human being. As a human being. And he was becoming strong for that. The next thing you know, how you shut him up. I have not been able to independently verify that John Taylor was a student at Story Elementary at that time and the boys who were there and were interviewed by the Texas Rangers that I spoke to said they didn't know him, but they also said that didn't mean he wasn't there. And Taylor was able to answer detailed questions about the school. What grade were you in at the time? Six. Elementary. Sixth grade? Mm-hmm. Okay. Was it elementary or middle school? No. It was, it was AM story, elementary school. Yeah. Oh, okay. We didn't go to middle school until we went to David Crockett. But my point is this. That story that we heard from John Taylor, even if he wasn't actually there that day, this is still an important account because this is the story that has currency in Palestine's black community. That Frank J. Robinson was doing good things, that pissed off the white hegemony, so he was murdered and then it was covered up. Myself personally, I, I believe he was killed. I really do. I believe he was assassinated. Because mm-hmm. the men had it going on. One more thing about Taylor. So I wanted to test the source. It's a reporter's trick. If your source is giving you quotes that are too good to be true, you got to check it out to see if he's just saying whatever he thinks you want to hear. I mean, ER and I just got to town. We walked up to the first guy that we saw at random, and he's given us this pure gold. So I needed to ask Taylor something nutty to see how he'd answer. And since this podcast was called The Ghost of Frank J. Robinson, I asked him if he'd seen Frank's ghost. Um, What I need to find out is if there's a ghost. (laughs) Well, I ain't seen now yet, but if I do, I'll let you know. (laughs) Now, I mean, I could be sitting out here, and I could swear I hear a door slam. You know. Tell me me more about that. So you would hear some odd... Or noises. That house was vacant. And it sounded like you can hear, you know how you let your windows up? And you put them down, they go, plow. I look, what's going on? <laughs> you know? You know, but I never seen a ghost figure, but I heard some strange things, you know? You know, uh, like I walk around here a lot. And I can walk and I make that left. And when I go down through there, I can swear somebody's in that window. You know? That's when I picked it up a little bit, you know. (laughs) Okay. Now let's get back to talking to E.R. Bills about the Texas Rangers report. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, the narrative was uh, in the black community that that he was murdered. Um, And, uh, yes, I think I think I remember that. Some of them did say shot in the back of the head. So I want to get into this uh, J. Robert Benton 
part yeah. in, in this report. And this is really odd, you know, almost comically awful. So in the report, it says the next person interviewed was J. Robert Benton, black male, 33, resides in Palestine, is employed at the Calhoun Packing Company. The reason for the interview with Mr. Benton was that the Palestinian Police Department had received an anonymous phone call stating that Mr. Benton had brought two white females to Frank Robinson's house on the morning in which the death occurred. Mr. Benson stated to this officer, Mr. Sadbury, and the polygraph examiner, Ralph Reeves, that he had never been to Frank Robinson's house. He had not brought two white females to meet Mr. Robinson and knew nothing about the death. And so the polygraph examiner was, uh, says that no deception was shown. This kills me that this is in here and that this trope of trying, you know, of, of trying to discredit a black man, and he's 74 years old at the time, with, with this uh, white women being brought to the house. It's comical. I completely agree with you. It's, it's what they call character assassination. It's an anonymous call. Why even report on it? Why include it in your report? But Bob was working with, with folks there in the local police department, um, and it was something to be followed up on. To me, it doesn't warrant mention in this actual this uh, Ranger report, but, but they noted it. And the fact that somebody noted it means it was circulated within the department. And, uh, again, it's comical. And it's, it's, it's completely pointless. But that did go on. That kind of stuff did go on. I think it was pointless, and I don't think it sheds any light. It's just something to gossip about. Another part of the investigation report that we have from uh, Bob Prince, Texas Ranger, that on 10 27 76, uh, that the Palestine, so the corporate judge, uh, so Judge Alex Niemer, and he's the presiding judge over, over the inquest. He, and we're going to get a lot about him later on. He received, right. he received a letter from Robert Harding, who is confined in the Caulfield unit of the Texas Department of Corrections in nearby prison. And in the letter, Harding states that he knew the person who was responsible for the killing of Frank J. Robinson. He further stated that he knew which shotgun was used, and that being a gas-operated Beretta. Okay, that's not true. We know that. So, but still, um, on that same day, Texas Ranger Bob Prince, along with the Assistant Texas Attorney General Anthony Sadbury, they go to Caulfield Unit and they go and they talk to this guy, Robert Harding. And during that interview, Harding says that he had joined the Ku Klux Klan, the Pasadena chapter, and that he had been uh, on the telephone with the Imperial Wizard. And he was told by the Imperial Wizard that the victim, Frank J. Robinson, was an agitator in Palestine and needed to be eliminated. What we have here is your typical jailhouse snitch type of a situation right? where we have people who just make stuff up when they're in jail and to try and get special favors. And this is what happens. It was considered to be unreliable and a fabrication and it didn't really carry much weight because this guy had made other false claims in, in the past. But still, it, 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 w it was worthy of, I think, further investigation into a Ku Klux Klan 
type of uh, involvement in the death of Frank J. Robinson. Um, I, I don't see much more than in this report than talking to uh, Robert Harding and saying, yeah, well, the guy's a blowhard and he's not worth listening to, but still, I mean, he was in prison. In Pasadena chapter of the Ku Klux Klan at the time was very active and they right. were very dangerous. They were involved in the bombing of Vietnamese fishing boats, Gulf Coast at the time. I thought it should, should have been taken more seriously. No, they were active. Obviously, we all, well, most of us know what the Ku Klux Klan was famous for. And so you have this activist in East Texas that is basically opening up, you know, routes to political power for black citizens of community. And what he's doing in Anderson County is going to be spread throughout East Texas. And if you were in the Ku Klux Klan at that time, a major player at least, and maybe even a minor player, Sure, you would have been aware of what was going on in Anderson County, and you would have been aware of of the successful efforts of Frank J. Robinson and Rodney Howard and Timothy Smith. So he would have been a name, even to mention in passing, uh, from a former or a pre- present at that time, I guess, Ku Klux Klan operative or, or member, because this wasn't something they were comfortable with. The imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan at that time was Louis Beam, and um, I did give him a call, <laughs> and, he, and I'm going to play it right here. Afternoon. Hello. Um, I'm looking for Mr. Louis Beam, please. This is he. Uh, Mr. Beam, hi. My name's David Martin Davies, and I'm a reporter for Texas Public Radio. How are you doing today? Oh, about the same as yesterday. Very good. That's probably pretty good. Hey, so... Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. I hope you don't mind. I don't give interviews. Hadn't in over 15 years. Yeah, I know. But I thought I'd give it a shot. Yeah, it's worth it. But he, he doesn't tell me anything. So I just thought, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this guy up and see if he'll tell me something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 that doesn't surprise me. I mean, uh, no. I mean, I'm sure, you know, obviously, <laughs> he wouldn't have any comment on the subject, I assume. But... uh I, I thought I would. It also it's another one of those things that, that it sort of strains credulity to, to suggest that they wouldn't have known who Frank J. Robinson was and what was going on out there and what they had fought for over a hundred years to keep a handle on, a grip on, was starting to slowly slip. And uh, so he would have been, if not a, a stated target, he would have been on their radar. There's no question. There's no way he couldn't have been. And uh, another tidbit in this report was this, um, so there was this uh, Mr. Bailey, uh, can't find his first name in this report. He His name was R.A. Bailey. It's so weird how they just use these initials at that time. That was how, R.A. Bailey, and that he had said. At Fairfield, yeah. That he ran a, like a lumber company uh, and that there were some black men uh, coming into his lumber company and that they were Black Panthers, and that they wanted to do some uh, retaliation assassination to make things right with the death of Frank J. Robinson. So he was passing this inside information that he had picked up. Apparently, I don't know how he would have gotten this information, but this is what he heard, and he wanted the Texas Rangers to know about it, that these two subjects are, are going to look for retaliation assassination. But it's also interesting that Bob Prince makes note in the report that Mr. Bailey is a former resident of Palestine 
and was an active leader in the segregationist forces in past years and had several conflicts with Mr. Robinson. That was the most important thing in that whole narrative that we have about the Black Panthers and retaliation, all that stuff are clearly made up. But, you know, we get a sense that there are a lot of people out there, segregationist forces, having conflicts with Mr. Robinson. That's significant. It's very significant, and I'm glad you brought it up. You know, not only did he have white prostitutes over the morning that he was killed, now that he's dead, uh, Black Panthers are now in the area. They're in Fairfield, and they're coming to assassinate whoever they think ki- killed Frank Barry. It's a scare tactic. It's, it's ludicrous. Well, since basically anything goes, any, any sort of chattering head who wants to make, right. a, make an allegation about Frank J. Robinson is uh, put into this uh, official report, I, I think we should talk about this um, person who comes to the Texas Rangers and he's saying, you know, Frank J. Robinson had a history of uh, involvement with the burning down of a, of a black church. That's in the report dated November 7th. So here, uh, an officer, along with Assistant Texas Attorney General Anthony Sadbury, interviewed Edwin McCoy, black male, 66 years old, who basically says that Frank was involved in burning down a church and that he believed the Lord was punishing Frank Robinson and drove him to commit suicide. And further stated, he believed that if there was any way that a person could commit suicide and make it look like murder, he believed that Frank Robinson could do it because he wanted to become a martyr. So it's like, it just seems to me it was another instance of besmirching Robinson's character. Right, but uh, so when you are a undertaker in a black community in like East Texas or anywhere, you are a person uh, held in high esteem. Uh, and I hear, I see this thing, uh, this testimony given and by uh, Edwin McCoy, and he's talking about how the church, and Frank was very much involved in church, in church politics in, in Palestine. Yeah. And in 1941 or 42, there was a church split. And that part, that church split was led by Frank Robinson. The original church was burnt, it was arson, and there was a, a court case. They charged two men in this, and the two men said that, that they were paid by Frank J. Robinson. But, you know, he was never charged officially uh, brought in on onto what happened on this. But what I... The witnesses what, were discredited, actually, by, by yeah, cross-examination. So they were discredited. So nothing ever came of it, but go ahead. I want to bring up the point that it's possible, highly likely, that in the black community, Frank J. Robinson was a controversial figure himself. Even though he was a leader fighting for voting rights, there were many people in the black community that didn't like him. No, there's there's no question. You're right. I mean, John Lewis, you know, he called it good trouble, right? I think that's what he called his book. Okay, well, back then, they didn't see it as good trouble. A lot of blacks' communities, it's, it created problems. People feared reprisals. And people in the black community back then in 1976, same thing. They would have been worried about reprisals. And so here's, here's Frank J. Robinson. They were... They were trying to make strides for their community, but there would have been members of the community that would have been fearful of retaliation and would have been someone who had, wouldn't have had an opinion on this subject if, they, if their white employer asked them about it because the wrong answer could cost them a, their job. I mean, those kind of things went on. Okay, so it wasn't something that was completely popular. There were people that had an established place 
within the broader uh, Palestinian community with the way things were. And here you have Frank uh, making good trouble, and that kind of shake rocks the boat, so to speak, to use the old cliche. And so he, he, I'm sure that he had people that he wasn't popular with. And also Frank was, uh, he walked the walk. His wife was also wildly active across the state and beyond. I mean, she was the head, the chairperson for this governor's commission on vocational training. Yeah, I mean, they were they were the real deal. And it's like they would have suffered jealousy. They would have perhaps suffered resentment. And they would have, a lot of people, maybe not to the, to the standard or the level of resentment, but they would have been weary. Hey, you're making trouble, and I've got white customers, and I don't want any trouble. I don't want to lose business. You know, they might have been concerned. What's interesting to me is that there's just another instance of somebody uh, besmirching uh, Frank's reputation leading up to, you know, like it's sequential, leading up to the inquest. To me, that's strange. The, the one thing that really comes to light, which I, I couldn't find good information otherwise, is about the screen door. Uh, so if there was someone who broke into uh, Frank's house, which was pretty much unnecessary because they, he, they kept their garage door open at all times. But uh, if you wanted to come back and not be seen uh, by the neighbors. Let me interject right quick. They, they always left their front door locked, but the side doors, which were there two, one on the side and one on the back, which is where the guy who found the body entered, they were always open. And, of course, the garage was always, you, you could open it. So you're right. But the screen door, it was a brand new screen in it. Dorothy said it was brand new, did not have any, anything wrong with it. But at the crime scene, they found that it was cut or pushed open. It was damaged. It could be seen as if it was a point of entry if someone who was going to break into the house. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm uh, thumbing through the reports right now because what, what was interesting to me about that is immediately, you know, they took Frank's shoes to have them examined to see if it had screen, you know, Residue. Uh, scratches on the shoes from the screen door. As if he so had accidentally kicked the door. He kicked it. Right, but that wasn't it. That wasn't it at all. And so it was a small object, uh, presumed to be around three inches uh, in width, and they never could find it. They never could establish it. But here's the thing. It was 18 inches up on the screen door. Now, I don't know what that signifies. I do know I don't have the longest arms, but at 18 inches, considering where the door handle is on most screens, (laughs) At 18 inches, you could stick your arm in a three-inch hole and open the inside of the the door if it was latched or remove the latch. Now, I don't know that's pure conjecture. I'm just saying it's possible. But it's just interesting to me that they noted that it was 18 inches up, three inches wide, and it wasn't wasn't Frank's shoes. Yeah. What was it? I don't know. (laughs) Well, I mean, but it, it, it was there. Dorothy said that cut wasn't there when she left. Right. Right. Uh, no. For her yeah, trip, exactly. I mean, if you were looking for what was the point of entry, that, exactly. that looks like that was it. So you go through the report and you look at uh, Bob Prince's work and even, you know, uh, their discussion of his reports and his testimony in the inquest. He, you know, he, he, he clarified there was no uh, nitrate or powder burns found on the body and that it, it was uh, that was a little inconsistent. That was his stance. In the trial. Um, so to me, um, there's just lots of there's lots of doubt here. 
uh, and, and it all adds up to uh, reasonable doubt. Well, it was Bob Prince's conclusion that uh, it looked like to him that it was suicide, mainly because he found no bloody footprints uh, in the blood from where Frank died. And also, but he said, however, at this time, no motive for suicide can be established and no motive for murder can be established, which I think is ridiculous. I think I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's one part of the report that, again, jumped out at me. Okay, some people say shot from the front, you know, with the, you know, the shotgun right on his his forehead, right in the middle between his eyes. And and some others just as he was shot in the back of the head. You know, so there's there's that difference of opinion. But um, if he was shot as the official report details or or suggests from the front, if you put that shotgun, you know, on the on the victim's forehead and shot him, okay, and then you just drop the shotgun, there would be no footprints in the blood. You would back out of the garage. You know, or leave the immediate vicinity. The blood wouldn't immediately, immediately just coat the floor. It's preposterous to suggest otherwise. It would have taken a minute, at least thirty seconds. You know, I don't care how much blood was pumping out. It, most of the the brain splatter was against the wall. They say, uh, and it would have sprayed up into like the ceiling area, and it would right. it wouldn't so. Uh, there, Bob Prince. When I when I talked to Bob Prince, he didn't want to be interviewed because he barely remembers this. I mean, it was a long time ago for him. But the thing right, he right. said that there was no void in the blood spray. Okay, well, he wasn't there for the blood spray. He didn't actually see what the blood spray looked like because he was cleaned up long before he got there. But a void in a blood spray. I mean, like if there was a person standing in front of you and you shot somebody that blood would go across the room and cover you, and therefore behind you, there would be no blood behind you. But if you shoot yeah, up it, into a person's head and then the blood spray is, is shooting upwards, you're not going to get... from you. You're, you're, not, you're not getting it covered because of the direction of the, of the, of the splatter. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought, brought that point up too because... It seems to me, and when I originally read this, you know, I, when I was trying to locate Bob Prince, in the trial, actually, and it's been a long time, and I, so I don't fault for him. Fault him. He don't remember everything uh, he says. I, I, I believe him. Okay, but in the trial, when, when you read the news coverage, his testimony not viewed as a confirmation of the verdict. It was reviewed as doubt. Right. Uh, uh, substantial doubt. And now he may not remember it. And now, of course, I know he's a member of the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and all that. He may not remember it. He may not want to talk about it anymore. I, have, I don't know him personally, and I have nothing against him. But back then, he seemed like a guy, again, kind of like those six boys. He was speaking, speaking out against the official narrative. But I want to get back to this one important thing. In this official report, and we have... Texas Ranger uh, Bobby G. Prince, badge right. number 330, Company F, Texas Ranger. He says, at this time, no motive for suicide can be established and no motive for murder can be established. And that doesn't make sense. There are people who are murdered all the time in 
East Texas and across the South for things trying to bring about voting rights in, in, the, in, in America, fighting for voting rights. That is a motive for murder. It seems like an excellent example of being tone deaf. He couldn't have not known about the lawsuits that Frank Robinson and the other. I mean, he lists lists all of Frank J. Robinson's affiliations in in this report. Right. And it talks about he's a member of the NAACP. He's a member of the East Texas Project. He's the only African-American who's on the statewide commission on voter registration. Uh, It goes on and on. about. he is a guy. He and Rodney Howard and Timothy Smith. They have won lawsuits. They're going to open up political representation of the black community. They have uh, basically ended the, the county's ability to gerrymander the black vote and suggest that, that there's no establishable motive for his death or his murder is, 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 is again, ludicrous. It's preposterous. There were still racists in that community. There were people in that community that weren't comfortable with what Frank and Howard and Smith were up to what they were doing and what they were achieving and what they were talking about spreading throughout East Texas. So it just seems really tone deaf because they did have enemies. I mean, is there demonstrable evidence? Do you have a smoke gun? No. But to suggest that nobody, nobody had motive to maybe get rid of Frank Robinson, they were all a threat because they were changing the socio-political climate of the community or trying to. E.R. Bills has written his account of the Frank J. Robinson mystery. The article is titled The FJR Assassination. It was published in the Fort Worth Weekly, and you can find it online. Anthony Sadbury, the special assistant to the Texas Attorney General who was sent to Palestine, a little bit more about him. He found himself in a peculiar position during the inquest, trying to excavate the truth from the East Texas clay. Sadbury was from Burleson County, that's next to College Station, and in 1968 he spent his senior year of high school at North Shore High School in Houston. At the time, he was the first and only black student at that school, and he graduated with honors. But when he applied to go to UT Austin, he was denied because he had spent only one year at an accredited high school. Sadbury enrolled at Navarro College in Corsicana, where he served as the president of the Student Government Association, graduated with honors, and then he went to UT Austin, again graduating with honors and serving as president of the Student Body Association. Sadbury then attended Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C., and in 2008, he died while serving as the executive director of the Texas Lottery. In 1982, he told a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that the Frank J. Robinson case always haunted him and that he wasn't satisfied with the outcome. He said he thought the truth would never fully be known and he wondered if the ruling of suicide was justified. Next time on The Ghost of Frank J. Robinson, Dorothy's story, we go deep into the oral history of Dorothy Robinson. That's in two weeks. This is The Ghost of Frank J. Robinson. I'm David Martin Davies. I'm the host, writer, editor, and producer. Dan Katz is the TPR News Director, and this is Texas Public Radio. 
Support for TPR comes from Texas A&M San Antonio, offering a world-renowned education at one of the lowest tuition rates in the state of Texas. Up to 98% of students receive financial aid. Application at becomeajaguar.com.